What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1 where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado. The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my co-host, Dan Favalli, and we are sponsored, as always, by DoorDash and BetOnline.ag. We are excited because the NBA Finals are upon us uh, in a matchup that I don't think anyone saw coming at the start of the playoffs, or especially at the beginning of the regular season. We have the Miami Heat representing the Eastern Conference against the Los Angeles Lakers from the Western Conference. We're going to be talking about that series as well as some other bits of news that have emerged in the last 24 hours. The Doc Rivers' mutual decision to part ways with the Los Angeles Clippers as head coach, the rumor that Victor Oladipo might want out of Indiana, and the latest in the seemingly perpetual potential rift between Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid on the Philadelphia 76ers. But before we dive into any of that, Dan, how's it going? I am T.I. Red. Adam, not going to lie. How are you doing? Still in good spirits, though. I'm ready for the NBA Finals. It's exciting, I will say, that we got here because there were many moments in time where I think a majority of people, but definitely you and I, were skeptical that we would get here. And so it's cool to see a conclusion to a season. And it's nice to, you know, I don't maybe it's not nice because these are unprecedented circumstances, but this is not, as you sort of mentioned at the top, a series that anyone expected. When, when the playoffs first were underway, I wrote a piece for Bleach Report about the most like unexpected finals matchups that we could see that we would actually want to see. And of the five that I picked, there was heat Lakers in part because of the LeBron versus Pat Riley slash Eric Spoelstra stuff. And then also Jimmy Butler once said that he always wanted to play for the Lakers. So um, that would be funny. And then just the idea of Jimmy Butler getting to the finals after the Sixers basically let him go. Uh, the Bulls traded him away for whatever. And then things soured in Minnesota. And a lot of people have put, most of that on him. And I, in Minnesota, the way that the departure unfolded, he definitely deserves criticism for, but he left three pretty incompetent front offices. And I think that that's something that was sort of lost amid the, the tumult there. So this is an interesting matchup. I'm excited to get into it. But like I said, I am also very much exhausted at the moment. How are you doing? I am also tired. Like, tired enough that when you said T.I. Red or whatever it was at the beginning, I, I struggled for a minute to understand what you meant because my, my brain is mush. My, my dog has been sick the last two nights and getting up every hour, and uh, it's like I have a newborn all over again, and it has not been uh, a fun reminder of that. <laughs> so yeah, I, I'm hooked up to a caffeine IV right now so that this isn't like too low energy a podcast. Yeah, I probably need to up my caffeine intake, and I already probably consume too much caffeine to begin with. And you did say before we started recording that you were brain dead, so I feel like this will be an awesome podcast. It should be. As if they all aren't already. I mean, come on. 
And for listeners, this is the first of three podcasts I'll be recording today as we talk on a, on a Tuesday. So mine will get progressively worse. Let's hope this is the, <laughs> the best one. So look, let's start with Lakers Heat Finals matchup. I'm not sure how you feel about this one since I'm sure it's not one that you've given a lot of thought to, at least maybe once the conference finals started, obviously, but before then, probably not. What are, before we get into the nitty gritty of it all, like what are your inklings? Who was just at the top? What is your pick? As we always start our previews. Yeah, I've uh, I've been struggling with this one a lot since the matchup was set, and really since it seemed likely to be set, because I, I think the Miami Heat are the better basketball team. They have superior coaching, they have superior depth, they have a lot of really good usable players, uh, and a lot of counters to what the Lakers do best, but I can't bet against a motivated LeBron James in this series, you know, especially because their path to the finals like hasn't been all that grueling and taxing relative to other teams. So I, I think I'm going to go with Lakers in six, even though that almost feels like an upset to me, despite the reputations of the franchises. I would say that that's the coward's pick, and it's also my pick. Lakers, I'm fine with that. Um, because I feel like it should be Lakers in five, but I don't want to discredit all the things that the Heat have done. And something that I've really found instructive is I was listening to – the Dunked On podcast, uh, and Danny LaRue mentioned this, the Lakers very clearly have the two best players in this series, which is huge to have the two best players in a series, not just the best player. Um, maybe on a given night, Jimmy Butler's better than an Anthony Davis, but on most nights, it's going to go LeBron, Anthony Davis, and then Jimmy Butler's the third best player. However, how when you go to the Lakers' third best player, how many Heat members of the Heat are in between like Anthony Davis and the Lakers' third best player. I was going to ask you this exact same question as we moved on, and I I'd kind of want to turn to NBA Math's player power rankings, um, which look at 10-game samples adjusting for the difficulty of the opponent and the box score contribution. So it does sell defense a little bit short, but it is at least a good baseline. And in those, which we released Tuesday morning, LeBron is number one, Anthony Davis is number two, but then Bam Adebayo is number three, Jimmy Butler is number four, Tyler Hero is number five, Goran Dragic is number six, Jay Crowder is number seven, Rajon Rondo is number eight, and then Duncan Robinson is number nine. And I kind of feel like Duncan Robinson belongs above Rajon Rondo as well, just he struggled with his shot a little bit during the second round of the playoffs. I don't think that Kyle Kuzma or Kentavious Caldwell-Pope or Danny Green or Dwight Howard or Alex Caruso belong above any of those heat players so i think you can make a serious argument that miami has the next six players after those top two and on any given night i think you could argue it'll be seven depending on what you get from andre Godala. i feel like that's a possibility kelly olenic has has thrown some flames at times during the playoffs too like you can get one game out of him so there'll be nights where it feels like the heat might have if everyone's like on seven of the nine best players on the court which is absolutely huge, why I think that the series could be extended. What I worry about, and I, I don't know if it's a worry, but I don't know what ends up happening with Miami's defense relative to how they're going to cover Anthony Davis and LeBron James. Like, let's just say, you know, this is obviously, they, they should play, it feels like, a lot of zone, because when you're looking at how much Boston struggled at it uh, versus it at times, and that was with Miami like really giving them no airspace on shooters, the Heat are going to be able to probably blockade the paint more against the Lakers because they're not going to be as concerned about Los Angeles' shooters, which have, to their credit, 
the Lakers are shooting 40% on wide open threes during the playoffs, and they were at like 44% in the Nuggets series. I would hazard that doesn't hold. And so there are... There Miami are, is way better at contesting three-point attempts than any of the previous opponents for the Lakers. Right. And I just, I don't believe KCP is going to shoot so well. Right. And I think I got into this on the mailbag that I did solo, the way that the Heat have been when they do the 2-3 zone, and they're just like, screw it, we're going to put Jimmy Butler and Jay Crowder at the top. Like, that gets like... That allows them to do a lot of things that other teams couldn't do if they were running the same defense. But looking at individual matchups, because we will see it, like they're that's the other thing with the Heat, which this is great. They will shape shift defensively, like not in the same quarter, but on the same possession. Like because their defenders, I, they're just they're able to do that. And so when you're looking at the individual matchups, I think it's easy to be like, well, Jimmy Butler on LeBron, bam against Davis. And if you were designing someone in a lab to guard Anthony Davis, it's the same when we're talking about Giannis Antetokounmpo, isn't it Bam Adebayo? But as we saw yes. in in that series, it was Jay Crowder that got most of the reps on Giannis. Is that going to happen in this series because the Lakers play so big? If they're going to continue to roll with two centers, whether it's Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee, do you put Bam Adebayo on the center and then Jay Crowder on Anthony Davis? And I think that matchup heavily favors Anthony Davis. And then you could get into, okay, well then uh you know they could double him like th- that's obviously something to do but where's the double coming from and then it, i feel like that also makes it really harder to guard the lebron anthony davis pick and rolls that would just be my guess and so that's one thing that i'm i don't want to say incredibly fearful of for miami but i think that anthony davis as he has all playoffs is going to cause some matchup problems for miami and maybe the silver lining there is like anthony davis is shooting over 44 percent on his pull-up two-pointers in the playoffs, which isn't astronomically high, but he was barely over 37% on those same shots in the regular season. And he's hitting more of his catch-and-shoot threes. He's just been an absolute monster. He's hitting more of his unassisted looks in general. If he's going to continue to play that way, that's even that's a problem either way, but I feel like it becomes, if he's doing that while they're playing bigger, that becomes a pretty big issue for Miami. Yeah, you know... I feel like if you're Miami, you kind of want to be in a situation where you're forcing Anthony Davis to be the one who beats you because it means that LeBron isn't. So I, I think I'm more willing to accept that matchup nightmare and and try to work around it. But I don't I don't expect to see as much, if any, of the two three zone that we saw against Boston in, in this particular series because that was by putting those bigger bodies up front, like they they were very much by design trying to take Kemba Walker in particular out of a rhythm just by surrounding him with bigger bodies by forcing him to not be able to drive down the middle whatsoever and kind of funneling everything to the corners and the baseline like that was all designed to work against him but the lakers don't have a primary ball handler beyond rajon rondo and lebron james you're not worried about rondo as a shooter and you can't do that to lebron because he has the size to counter it so i I don't expect to see that as much as more traditional sets and just a lot of cross-matching that's a good point too. I, I, I still though I just don't know. Like even if you're gonna go that direction, the whole Lakers having a center that isn't AD on the floor, I just don't know how that's gonna end up impacting Miami's defense. My guess would be that they default to Jay Crowder on Anthony Davis in that situation. I wonder if you could put Jay Crowder on whoever the center is too, and then just let Bam stick with Davis, uh, just no matter who else is on the court, and just kind of accept that. Dwight Howard or JaVale McGee is going to overpower Crowder or whoever else is attempting to guard him on a couple of possessions, but they aren't really takeover players, especially at this stage of Howard's career. Right. And I guess if, regardless of who's guarding him, maybe if you get a little, if it's Tyler Hero, like 
unless it's that, Dwight Howard posting up is a win. You can even argue that Anthony Davis posting up on Jay Crowder is a win for you because Anthony Davis is averaging over a point per possession on post-ups during the postseason, shooting 52% on them. That's incredibly high for post-ups. That still amounts to a relatively inefficient offense. Yep. And so perhaps they look at it that way. The other concern that I was going to look at was the, we've talked about a lot how are the Lakers going to fare in the non-LeBron minutes. They've been winning it with AD on the court. I'm just, LeBron is averaging a career low in playoff minutes right now. Uh, he was at 38.5 minutes per game over the final three games of those the Nuggets series. And I think he logged over 40 minutes in the uh the game five clincher, if I'm not mistaken, how many minutes is he playing in this series? Is he averaging over 40? 42, maybe. It yeah. just it just feels like not that the non-LeBron minutes won't be a concern, but it just feels like the Lakers aren't going to mess around with those minutes. Like the, it's not going right. to be unless it's a blowout. You're not going to see like 12 minutes of LeBron not on the floor. And that's kind of the biggest conundrum for me is is how the minutes are going to play out. Just because we haven't the Lakers' path to this stage has been kind of weird, in that they've only needed five games in each of the three series, which theoretically should mean that they are pretty fresh, all things considered, for this stage of the postseason. But on the flip side, and I will I will provide a caveat here by saying that I, I mean no disrespect to the previous opponents. But they haven't really played a great team yet. And I think Miami qualifies as a great team. So I'm, I'm looking at NBA Math's team power rankings now, which take into account strength of schedule, um, the, the difficulty of the calendar, whether there are back-to-backs, how close the games are together, home away, which hasn't obviously mattered while they're all playing in, in the neutral site that is the bubble. But Portland finished that first-round series, and, and a, a 100 is an average team. By this metric, anything above is better. Portland finished at 99.7. Houston, which was still trying to reincorporate Russell Westbrook, who was very clearly hurt, finished at 99.53. Denver, which was exhausted from three from two three to one comebacks in the previous two series, as good as that team was, finished at 99.44. The Heat are at 101.86 going into this series. They are the best team that the Lakers have played, and I. I as good as Denver's future appears to be, I'm not sure that given the circumstances that they really qualified as like top level competition, no matter how competitive some of those games were. And I don't mean any disrespect to the Nuggets. It's purely circumstantial there. But based on the numbers, like this is the toughest test and maybe the first true test that this Lakers team has faced in the playoffs, which makes it even harder to evaluate them. I... I'm with you, but I do. There is a chance to me in this series that we look back in hindsight and say Denver might have been LA's biggest test, which seems wild to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. It, very possible. But it, I mean, we said it going into that series where it's like if these two teams were, were fresh and in similar circumstances, like, yeah, maybe we feel more comfortable picking the Nuggets, but the mental and physical drain of two consecutive 3 1 comebacks in the playoffs. I mean, we saw how exhausted Jamal Murray looked when he was told that he had to play another game two days later after the first comeback. Um, it, it was it was an unfair playing field for that series. You've counted on restaurants. Now they're counting on you. And while their dining rooms may be closed, they're still open for delivery with DoorDash. DoorDash is the app that brings you the food you're craving right to your door. I can confirm this. I've been using DoorDash quite frequently throughout this pandemic that we're all trying to survive mostly whenever i've just been jonesing for some wings 
could be the middle of the week could be looking for a cheat night i just i need my wings sometimes large orders i'm talking like 50 wings or, or more uh and i can eat those pretty much in in one sitting so doordash has been great whether i need uh, contactless delivery or even if i'm just placing a pickup order they make that super easy as well just open the doordash app choose what you want to eat and your food will be left safely outside your door with a new contactless delivery drop-off setting choose from your favorite national restaurants like chipotle wendy's and the cheesecake factory but also many of your favorite local restaurants are still open for delivery too that's what i've been doing uh using all these local smaller businesses to, to get my chicken wing fix doordash has them all love that that they're all just located on there and right now get this our listeners can get five dollars off and zero delivery fees on their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. That's $5 off and zero delivery fees on your first order when you download the DoorDash app and enter code BLUEWIRE. Don't forget, that's code BLUEWIRE, all one word, for $5 off your first order with DoorDash. My next, I don't know, call it issue or bullet point on this series, I'm interested to see how, and I guess this is two-parter, is how much center does Anthony Davis actually wind up playing? Because this probably does toe step on the foot of what we were just talking about before. Uh, I think every, I would say the vast majority of people believe that the Lakers are at their best when Anthony Davis is at the five, the numbers both in the regular season and playoffs have not supported this. It's more been dead. Even Uh, 484 possessions for AD at the four in the playoffs so far, the Lakers have a net rating of plus 13.9 during those time during that time. When he plays center, 604 possessions plus 12.9 points per 100 possessions is their net rating. So that's like very, very close. In this series specifically, though, it's more similar to the Rockets, whereas you're going to see a lot of Jay Crowder as your four or just like Bam Adebayo and then all wings and and guards, essentially, like whoever you want to call your de facto four in those situations. I'm wondering if the Lakers tried to counter that or if what we were talking about before, if they're trying to capitalize on cross-matching, even just the regular you know, individual matchups, will they still try and stay big? Um, in part because of what the series that Dwight Howard had against the Nuggets. I'm curious to see how they, they, because it's not as drastic as it was with Houston because Bam Adebayo is more of a, it's not a traditional big, but he's an actual big where the, uh, Houston had some variation of it. It's like Roko or PJ Tucker at the five or Jeff Green at the five, whoever you wanted to say. And I just don't know how that's going to, change the way that the Lakers play because it has seemed through these playoffs that they're going to adjust their lineups based on the matchups that are in front of them. That comes right down to, you know, Dwight Howard starting instead of JaVale McGee against the Nuggets. This is the first series they've had where it it feels like we don't have a a good answer going into it. We knew against Portland who was going to play Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside that they were going to have to play a little bigger. We knew against Houston who didn't have a single center on the roster aside from the corpse of Tyson Chandler, that they weren't going to. And we knew against the Nuggets that you have to go big uh, against Nikola Jokic. Uh, This one, like because Bam Adebayo is so versatile and because he doesn't really play like a traditional center on either end of the court, really, I don't know. Like I, I do maintain that just in terms of the personnel they have, that Anthony Davis at the five makes the most sense against most opponents. And if they're eager to dictate the terms in this series that, that's probably what they should do. But it also feels like they can get away with so many different combinations against this team. And the dual big one is interesting because I feel like if Miami's going to go to zone more, the best way to probably put the most amount of pressure on would be, can you control the defensive glass and then just get out and run when you're grabbing rebounds? And probably the most efficient way to control the defensive glass would be 
hey, Anthony Davis playing with White Howard, or even if you want to say Anthony Davis playing with JaVal McGee, and so that will allow you to get out and run. And so while if you're in the half court, I might argue that having Anthony Davis at the five is better. If you're really looking to run, it feels like it might be more efficient or more deadly to have the, the dual big lineups in there because you're going to need to, you're obviously going to need Miami to miss shots to make that happen. But if you're in that situation, I would think that the dual big lineups have more value there if you're going at it from that, that perspective. Yeah, I concur. I'll, I'll be really interested to see what happens there because it's so difficult to make a prediction about it. And this sort of, I think what also makes it more difficult is Miami feels like, and Coach Bo specifically, where he's not going to have, and I know teams are like this, they're going to play the matchups even when you're closing tight games. Like, look at game six against the Celtics in crunch time. Like, he, Coach Bo had Iggy, Adebayo, Robinson, Butler, and Hero on the floor. And so, like, Dragic was on the bench, and Jay Crowder was on the bench. And it's like, if you don't really know, like, who you're going to go up against in those tight situations, because those are two players who could just be on the floor in crunch time. Like, you, I think the only constants in crunch time for the Heat are you're going to have Bam and you're going to have Jimmy Butler. And then almost anything goes after that. I won't say that, like, Olenek or Derek Jones Jr. will be on the floor. At the same time, though, like, we're talking about a team that had Myers Leonard starting at one point. Derek Jones Jr. was kind of a major contributor in the regular season for them. And then also Kendrick Nunn, before the bubble, was starting over Dragic. I feel like Tyler Hero is a lock for that now. Instead maybe of... I'm, maybe I'm buying way too much into to recency, but he looked that good in that Boston series. And I just, I can't imagine him not being on the floor in crucial minutes now, whether it's in place of Dragic, who looked like he was slowing down in that Boston series, or in a dual point guard lineup. There's... <sighs> I wonder if LA's athleticism could give Tyler Hero problems, but I guess you might run into the same issue if we're talking about Dragic as well. Like that could be the it could be a similar issue where like do you need both those guys on the floor just to kind of vary your your ball handling approach? Because Hero's shown but that he can I think the beauty of playing against the Lakers who don't have a good backcourt at all is that they don't have a good backcourt at all. So like are you really worried about them matching up with Rajon Rondo and Contavious Caldwell Pope and Danny Green? There are probably places for them to hide, but I, look, Danny Green is like one of the best three-point shooters in finals history. Right. So, like, right. I would think you'd worry about that a little bit. I'm just, I'm, I'm just wondering if their secondary ball handlers, like, you could put them either. You want to play the either-or game. You want to put them both on the floor at the same time, um, to diversify your attack. Like, that's that's cool. But does LA's defense like sort of give them like because you have. Like, L.A. has Alex Caruso. They have playoff Rondo, if you want to say that, playoff KCP. You have Danny Green. Like, those are guys who could give, uh, you know, even if LeBron wants to, like, if he, does, if, you don't, if he doesn't want to defend Jimmy Butler or isn't defending Jimmy Butler for some reason, and you put him on a hero or a Dragic, like, playoff LeBron in that situation is going to be a problem for them. So that's something else that concerns me because I feel like Miami's offense has been a lot better than I expected it to be. And I'll say the same about uh, the Lakers, who are third in offensive efficiency for the playoffs, I believe this is per cleaning the glass, so it filters out garbage time. There, like both these teams have have surprised me offensively, and I think if you're looking at, you know, if they both can get out on the break, like maybe it kind of stays dead even there. But if you're looking over the course of a series, just in the macro, it feels like the Lakers have a better chance of maintaining their their level of of offense in the playoffs than Miami does in this matchup. I can see that, but yeah, I mean, I I just keep coming back to the. This series is so weird to me because everything is pushing me towards wanting to pick Miami. 
you know, their their half court defense against the Lakers half court offense, the the depth of of usable talent that they have and star level talent that they have, the coaching disparity, everything is pushing me towards Miami. The the teams that they've they've beaten to get here compared to the teams the Lakers have beaten to get here. But then there's LeBron. And that's what we haven't talked about yet is like, how do you how do you stop this guy? He's 35 years old and he's he's very clearly the best player in basketball after these playoffs. Like I'm I'm not willing to hear arguments about it again because, you know, as Giannis is going to be the two time MVP and, and deserved both of those MVPs. But LeBron is is showing yet again that he just doesn't care as much about the regular season. And you put him in these do or die situations and there is no answer for him. Yeah, and it, look, it's he's not like beating players off the dribble in traditional fashion anymore, but he's so strong that it it doesn't matter. Like he can slow it down a notch or twenty, and he'll still. Actually, just... Let me ask you. Let me ask you a question on this topic. So we're we're launching the the crystal basketball postseason analysis that we've done for years at NBA Math, where we grade every single player in the NBA on a one to twelve scale, and twelve is reserved for the best player in the NBA. You can only give out one twelve on your personal ballot. Who are you going to give yours to this year? I think it's LeBron and it's the, the playoffs have, I think I've, there's two methods of thought here that are like pulling me in different directions is one. I'm very much inclined to say like, well, how much do we take away from the bubble? Just because like, this is so unprecedented and LeBron seems like a player who's better set up to stop and start than anyone else. At the same time, kind of since last year. And then especially after this season, looking at the Bucks specifically, like I'm resigned to just reading so much more into the playoffs because like, that's when you're going to face like the toughest counters to what you're doing. And like, yes, the regular season is the bigger sample size, but the postseason is one highest stakes. And it's going to be more representative of what a lot of players and teams can do when they're given the time to be more methodical. And so after watching these playoffs, you're seeing what happened with the Clippers, where even if you don't want to say functionally that there's an argument against Kawhi Leonard, the behind the scenes stuff where like, if there wasn't chemistry in the locker room, some of that has to fall on your best player. Like it just does. It's that's not the kind of like leader he is. That's fine, but it's still going to fall on him. And then seeing what was happening to Buck, the Bucks, and Giannis before Giannis was even injured, I I have to say LeBron. Like there's I, there's a case for Giannis. I, I like, and if you want to go with Kawhi, it's really more so Giannis because I think he benefits from his. It feels like emotional attachment to the outcome of the regular season as well. Not on a James Harden level, but he just seems emotionally invested in every single possession at both sides of the floor. So he still has a case, but after the playoffs, I think it has to be LeBron. In our preseason crystal basketball, LeBron actually fell to fifth behind James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry, and Giannis. Um, Coming out of the 2018-19 season, we had him sixth behind Giannis, Steph Curry, KD, James Harden, and Kawhi. Uh, going into the 2018-19 season, where did we have him? I have a weird filter on this spreadsheet, apparently. He was first, so that was his last topping of the Crystal Basketball rankings. And it's it's amazing that a 35-year-old is is has a chance to, to reascend to that throne. He's going to be up there for me. And it's, I mean, especially after this regular season, too, where it seems like he just, the Lakers had a roster that could play defense, and so he decided to buy in defensively and no he was I think he spent statistically um per b-ball indexes Christian Narshu's statistic I think he statistically spent the most time on number three options if I'm not mistaken I like don't care he's age 35 and like that was the best defense he played since he called Miami home and, and the co- thing is like with with LeBron's defense for years now it's not about who he's guarding primarily it's about his level of buy-in off the ball because you see him not making the rotations and then 
pointing at the guy that is wide open because he didn't make the rotation and blaming a teammate or just not trying to jump a passing lane. And throughout these playoffs in particular, but really throughout the regular season, we didn't see any of that. How many how many prescient plays has he made throughout the postseason? Whereas like how in the world did he know that was coming and manage to jump it? To this whole conversation, who is Miami's best defender just outright against LeBron? And I think it's we're mostly going to see Jimmy Butler, but there are going to be people that wonder whether it's Igadala, Jay Crowder. Do we even see some BAM on LeBron? I think we do. And that's the fun part is that they have so many guys who can actually at least slow him down somewhat. In theory, on paper, maybe. I realized after I said that that I was way less confident in what I had just said. <laughs> it's because there are so many like plotters that we could just bestow upon the Heat, and we are. And like I want to pick them. I feel like they might be a trendy pick. It's hard. I don't like diluting this down to I'm not betting against LeBron at this point. I'm I'm almost like inclined to say I'm also not betting against this version of Anthony Davis that we've seen, where it's like, yeah, you can live with the shots he's taking, except those shots are going in, whereas in the regular season, a lot of them weren't. So, Look, the biggest knock on Anthony Davis for years has been the lack of a takeover ability, that he needed another star alongside him, whether it was Drew Holiday or if the Pelicans needed to acquire someone else, and if he had the motor and desire to, to be able to lead a team on his own. Well, he doesn't have to because he's alongside LeBron, and yet he's playing like he can now. I mean, I, I think it's as simple as that. It's like he's answering that question right in front of us right now. Yeah, he. I I can't pick against them just yet, but I, I feel like I'm going to waffle a few times on this series. Like I just – this feels – like if Miami comes out and win game one, wins game one, like that feels like the type of outcome that could kind of flip how I'm feeling about this game on my head. And the thing I also wanted to note is so um, – in the conference finals, in the fourth quarter, Anthony Davis slashed 67-60-94. The, the man has been an absolute beast in the fourth quarter during these playoffs. I think overall, looking at this, yeah, so overall in fourth quarters during the playoffs, he's slashing 63-44-81. He's been just in... I think that's good. Uh, I think it's okay. It's all right. Like, it, it's doable. It's playable. So, I'm just... I think I'm stubborn in that way. And I also want to give credit to the Lakers defense because I do think that they can match up, as I sort of mentioned before, pretty well against Miami in the half court. And so I don't know what their best lineup ends up being in this series. Like, is it an Anthony Davis, the five scenario? Is it going big? Um, it matters how you fill out those final two spots. If you're going, I'm assuming AD and Dwight Howard would be the best big man combination for this team. And then LeBron. So the best lineup from there, like it becomes like a two man game. And I think it would be Danny Green and Alex Caruso. But I'm not sure. Like, you could probably sneak Rondo if you want more ball handling in there or KCP into that conversation. I don't think Kuzma's a member of it, even though he's played fairly well defensively for them. And I also don't know this if that— This is a terrible matchup for Kuzma. I don't think it's going to be great for him. Um, but I think that will end up being—I'll go Green, Caruso, LeBron, Howard, and AD ends up being their most important five-man combination. If you remove Howard from the equation— how you feel out the fourth gets interesting. If you want size, I think Kuzma or Markeith Morris are the obvious picks. But again, a KCP or Rondo in that situation could be incredibly intriguing. I think Rondo's in there for me just because you need that extra ball handling, especially against this swarming Miami defense. But I, I get the arguments against that. Rajon, uh, but just to be Rajon Rondo shooting 58.3% in the fourth quarter from three-point range in the playoffs, just FYI. Also pretty decent. But just to be clear, you're, you're not picking the Nuggets to win this series? Uh, 
I don't know, maybe Nuggets. If, if there was like best of nine, I might go Nuggets. But because it's best of seven, I think I'm going to choose between the Heat or the Lakers. Look, okay. my That's Nuggets, I will say, I don't deserve any credit for it because of how much I vacillated. And I did pick against them in the uh, Clippers series. But my title pick for the Nuggets does not look as ridiculous now. I, got, I caught so much crap. for. I was the only one at Bleacher Report, and they put up a graphic with my name. I caught so much crap for picking the Nuggets. Most people picked the Clippers. There were some Bucks and Lakers like scattered out there. I think there. I can't remember if there were some Celtics there. I think there. I don't even know if there were any Raptors. There definitely weren't any members of the Heat. They were one of the final four teams. That's all I'm saying. So it does not look as egregious as it did. I don't think it should have been egregious in the first place. But here we are. I mean, I picked the Bucks from start to finish, and whoops, your team didn't even make it to the second round. Out of the second round, excuse me. Um, also, shouts to Dwight Howard, who might not only might he win a title, but he might do so in Orlando. I still think he's one of the lamest players, just based off some of the stuff he does on the court. But he's going to win a title in Orlando. That's like two birds to me, one stone, right there. That's weird. I hadn't thought about that at all. But yeah, that's that's interesting. So we're both picking Lakers in six. Yeah, I'll say uh, this then: the Miami Heat win this series if finish that sentence. The Miami Heat win this series if. I just I have so much trouble with it because I guess if, if what we're seeing from Anthony Davis is more a product of the matchups and the rest advantage than anything else, and if that's negated against Miami and he's no longer this world burning mega superstar who is capable of challenging LeBron James for the throne, not just on his own team but in the NBA as a whole, if he doesn't look like that player, then Miami has a chance. I think that's fair. I would say I could finish that in two ways. I'll say one is if the Miami's able to just limit LA's high percentage opportunities close to the basket. No team is attempting more shots within six feet, uh, within five feet, excuse me, during the playoffs. The other thing that I'll note is the Heat win this series if the Lakers supporting cast doesn't hit their their three pointers consistently. Like I, I don't want to simplify it down to that much, but I actually feel like that's going to end up being it's it's probably something you could have followed through in each series. They've just gotten enough of it, even though they've been one of the lowest three point shooting teams uh, during the playoffs. If they don't get enough of it, like if if Kuzma or Rondo or Danny Green is going cold or KCP, like if they don't have guys the supporting cast hitting those jumpers around Anthony Davis and LeBron James when the ball isn't in their hands, that ends up being like a ridiculously ginormous problem. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Let's move on, though. Where do you want to go next? To, the, to Philly? Let's go to Philly. So, uh, Keith Pompey of the Philadelphia in- Inquirer reported that um, the two things, one of which is that the job in with the Sixers is basically Mike D'Antoni's to lose, but he also kind of noted that there's a full-blown rift between Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Uh, he wrote, who 
he, this is what he wrote. This is from his piece. As a Los Angeles Lakers player, Tyron Lue won NBA titles in 2000 and 2001 while playing with Hall of Famers and Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal, who, like Simmons and Embiid, didn't get along. So, like, just outright said it. This Does this surprise you at all? And do you think that this is an issue for the Sixers? No, it doesn't really surprise me because, you know, as the saying goes, where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's been so much smoke over the years. Does it concern me? No, not really. Because if if we're comparing them to, to Lakers superstars who didn't get, get along, like you put the right pieces around them and you can still win a title. Um, you can still win multiple titles. These guys are still so talented and I still have way more concerns about the ineptitude of the Philadelphia front office and putting the right pieces around them and letting JJ Redick walk and letting Jimmy Butler get away in favor of retaining Tobias Harris in signing Al Horford to the mega deal. Um, Those are my concerns more so than whether two guys get along off the court. We don't know if it was on the court that wasn't really specified in the report, but if you put the right players around these two guys, they still have as much talent as any duo in the NBA, LeBron James and Anthony Davis notwithstanding. As long as that's true, I don't care if they don't get along. See, this would concern me because they don't have the right talent around them right now, and the and it's not just something that they can easily pivot out of when you're looking at the Al Horford contract, three years, $81 million, $69 million guaranteed left. Tobias Harris is, uh, I think, four years and $147.2 million. It's a, it's a round, that number. And if now your two best players who have imperfect fits around them aren't getting along, this feels like a situation where next season, should the Sixers flame out, where they're like, don't make the conference finals, Joel Embiid, I feel like, starts to get a little grumpy and, and requests a trade. Like that's, I can that, see it happening. Like that would be, he would just be the player I'd point to because Ben Simmons is going to have more years left on his deal at that point. And if, if you even had to come down to picking between them, and again, I don't think you're at that point. I've made this clear. I think they could still work together if you put the right talent around them. It's a question of whether you can do that now or, or have you sort of boxed yourself into a corner. But if you did have to pick between them, I think you have to pick Ben Simmons. Like I think he's the guy that you have to build around. Even though Joel Embiid is the better player right now, just counting on Embiid's availability feels difficult, even though Simmons has had his own injury issues. But he's going to be able to have as a playmaker – assuming they still use him as that moving forward, he will have inherently more influence over the offense. And I just, I think it makes him easier to to build around. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that even if Simmons was an actual negative on offense, that the luxury of having a versatile positionless player who made as large a defensive impact as he did this season without the, the overarching injury concerns that Embiid has is too important. Like, Ben Simmons could have been in the defensive player of the year conversation this year. I don't think that's in any way hyperbolic to say that. No, I don't. He certainly could have been in there. And like he's, how many players can legitimately defend all five positions right now? And maybe don't put Ben Simmons in that if you don't trust him against centers. So how many players can legitimately defend four positions? And I still think you're Giannis, Bam Adebayo, Simmons. LeBron, maybe. I think OG can get you four positions. He's not going to get you five. So, like, he's he's just one of the most versatile defenders in the NBA. And look, Embiid is one of the most impactful defenders, but it feels like he has an on-again, off-again relationship, like, with how engaged he is. And then also, just big men are inherently more schemable. Like, if you if he can't, like, be around yeah. the rim, like, there's not going – if there's a way to pull him out of there, which some teams are going to be able to do, 
it becomes an issue. But it, I would say if you're ranking players right now, Embiid is the better player. But it just feels like that could really tilt pretty easily, if not pretty quickly. Two more things to they get. Have to make oh. some, they have to make some moves over the offseason. But I don't think one of those needs to be splitting that duo up. You can still work more ancillary moves around them and try have try having one more year together. Yeah, and look, it would be more than that if they got along, I think. But if they don't, then I, then that's why the, the clock is on. Like, if you can't material, cha- materially change this roster around them, that's why I would say, like, they're kind of working on a one-year shelf life. Let's go to L.A., which I probably feel like we should have started with since the Doc Rivers news was bigger. Uh, Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports had reported initially after the Clippers elimination that Doc Rivers' job was safe. Now we hear Woj broke the news that it was a mutual parting, that Doc Rivers is out. Um, it's funny when all these things are spun as like mutual partings. We saw that with Kenny Atkinson and the Brooklyn Nets. I'm, I tend to wonder like if there wasn't so much in the Clippers case, it wasn't necessarily turnover, but like if there wasn't such a change from how they were playing last year, where the absence of real superstars and superstar egos, um, and there wasn't a discrepancy in the locker room, like in, in how the players were approaching the season, is he still there? So I'm wondering how mutual it is. It feels like this is one of the situations where it could have been more doc-driven than organizationally driven. A lot of people, I think, have cited that Steve Ballmer, after having seen you know Doc be behind these collapses, most notably, uh, what was that, 2015 against the, the Rockets? They were up 3-1. I think that was 2015, and they ended up uh, they ended up blowing that. So I think there's an argument to be made that you could explore a change. I just don't know necessarily where the the upgrade is coming from the names that have been mentioned. Uh, the biggest one I think is Ty Lu, who's already there and who should be the favorite. I would think so too. Like that's just of someone who can come in and balance out a locker room and then a good offensive mind. Like maybe we see more creative stuff from the Clippers next season. I would think that he would be, he personally, if I'm Philly, I would have Ty Lu at the top of my list too, but it seems like that's the Antonis job to lose now as, as Poppy reported. Which would be a, a fun and intriguing fit. Yeah, I mean, if, if Ty Lu isn't the answer, I, I would still like to see them look internally and promote Sam Cassell. I would love to see him get a head coaching shot. He has long been viewed as a top-tier candidate who just hasn't gotten that opportunity yet. The uh, The amount of, of personality and, and drive that he would bring to this team could be important after this this latest collapse that they've endured. I would love to see Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson get a shot, but only so that they're off of my television screen. Um, beyond really that, I have no reasonable arguments for that. This might be a terrible take. I really don't mind Jeff Van Gundy. Like his, I feel like his, and maybe it's just when you hear him on the low post, he gets a little bit more nuanced, but I feel like he does a better job of straddling two lines during broadcast than like Mark Jackson, who I also feel like regurgitates the same things over and over again. But maybe that's an unfair take. I mute the TV every time Jeff Van Gundy is on it just because I get so tired of the negative shtick where he has to complain about everything under the sun and barely ends up talking about the game that's being called. Uh, so I, Ty Lue is both at the top of our list. Sam Cassell is interesting. Other three names that I want to see that I would be thrown into. I'm surprised that Mike D'Antoni wasn't mentioned just because I feel like he could sort of glitz up the offense a bit. Like even though they weren't a terrible offensive team, like it just felt like there wasn't like any flow. To it, And when you have such good players in Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and even Lou Williams, maybe that doesn't matter. But even D'Antoni did some interesting things with the Rockets when they leaned into iso ball with James Harden and at first Chris Paul. 
Kenny Atkinson feels like he might be fun there, though I don't know if he's the personality you're looking for to to steer superstars in Kawhi Leonard and uh, Paul George, since that it does feel like that was what led him to leave Brooklyn, at least partially. Uh, the name, look, you mentioned a Van Gundy. Give me Stan Van Gundy over Jeff Van Gundy. It just feels like based off Stan. I agree. I agree yeah. from a coaching perspective, but that doesn't have the added benefit of getting him off the, the booth because contrary to Jeff, Stan is phenomenal. That's what makes me want him in this situation. Hearing him analyze the game, like he's pretty, feels like he has a more modernized modernized approach. And that might be something where he is like the best of all worlds for the Clippers in this scenario. I still would put Ty Lue above him, but Stan Van Gundy might be my second favorite pick for this coaching job. And I'll be interested to see if he gets any love. I think the two favorites as of right now reported by Woj were Ty Lue and Jeff Van Gundy, but I'd rather see the other Van Gundy there. But I, I don't want to lose him as an analyst on TNT. He's so good. He's so good. It would be interesting if Doc Rivers ended up with the Pelicans and Alvin Gentry ended up with the Clippers, which I actually think would be a good fit for Los Angeles because Gentry has that offensive guru reputation, and that's where this team needs more help. They have all the defensive pieces already. So if that's his weak spot, that's already solved by virtue of the players they have on the roster. And just getting more creative with the offensive talent that they had could be really impactful. I will say I've never heard his last name pronounced Gentry. I've always said Gentry. Is is that wrong? I don't know. I'm too brain dead at this point. We've been talking for too long already. <laughs> uh, sub 45 minutes for us, which is really short. And that I think that's a good segue into the... Well, the last thing I want to ask you on the Clippers thing, do you think the Doc Rivers departure is the right move for the Clippers insofar as they had any control over it. And you would think they had at least some, some control because if it's mutual, like let's just, let's just assume that the reporting is accurate here. If it was mutual or let's even assume that they, they were the ones that decided that they wanted to move on and initiated it. Is it the right move? It's the easy move. It's the easy <laughs> scapegoat. Um, but I, I, coaching changes are always difficult because it matters who's available. And I do think that right now there are enough reasonable and good options available without that many appealing openings that, yeah, it can be justified. I, I, I'll hesitate to say it was the right move because Doc Rivers is an upper echelon coach. And whenever you part with that, it's a big deal. Um, I, I, I think the, the, the most full-throated endorsement I can give it is that it wasn't a wrong move. Uh, I can't remember who said this, so I apologize for not crediting them, but they also, someone posed the question of how many teams have actually, like, do they regret getting rid of their past head coach? And the situations that came up were Dave Yeager for Luke Walton seems like pretty terrible. Um, the Bulls, both instances, like you went from Tom Thibodeau to Fred Hoiberg, that didn't seem to work out. And I would argue Hoiberg to Boylan is the, Boylan is the worst move there. Um, but now they have a different coach there. So it doesn't really seem like a ton of teams regret their coaching decisions, even the stuff that's going on with the Knicks, it's like the, the Suns kind of picked up the Igor Kokoshkov awkward fit there, like picked up the pieces from there. So maybe if you want to name that, but they, they get into Monty Williams, who I think is by far an upgrade. We'll see how the Knicks end up doing with Tibbs there. And that's actually a good point is it doesn't seem like there's been like these major flops. I mean, Brooklyn's taking a chance in Steve Nash. That felt like getting rid of Atkinson felt like a, I thought it was a bad move at the time. We'll see how Nash does knowing that he'll have Kyrie and KD's ear. But that, that's a fair point to analyze as well, is it doesn't really seem that any, very few teams anyway are like really in, like are any of them, like one or two or three are in dire straits or should really miss their their most recent head coach. 
in general, my, my philosophy with this stuff is that I, I think NBA teams and really teams in every sport are too quick to pounce on retreads who are more middling options. Like if you if you can hire Mike D'Antoni, who has a lot of demonstrated success, if you can hire Doc Rivers now, who has a lot of demonstrated success, go for it. But otherwise, like taking a chance is not a bad thing. So if you want to to give Ty Lue his first real opportunity to be a head coach, because I'm not counting coaching the LeBron James-led Cleveland Cavaliers, because that was just weird from the start. If you want to give Sam Cassell his first opportunity, if you want to give Chauncey Billups his first opportunity, like those are those are the kind of names that I would rather teams go after instead of like the the second and third tier retread options. No, I think I think that's an absolutely fair point. Is that and it it depends on the organization, but when it's like a bigger market where the team is so ready to win, those feel like the squads that are most likely to to lean on those coaching options that you you were just talking about. Agreed, agreed. Our last thing. So Victor Oladipo. This comes from uh, the Athletics. Jared Weiss uh, wrote that it's basically known that Oladipo wants out of uh, Indiana. I was about to say Boston, and I have no idea why I was about to say Boston. <laughs> Um, so one, we did say at the top how tired we were. Yeah. And so before we get into, I'll throw some trade packages out. You, they're not, they're like off the cuff ish because I don't have any written down, but I've given a lot of thought to Oladipo trades. Like, what do you make of this? Are you surprised? Do you think that the Pacers should end up moving him? Yes, I would absolutely move him while his value is still high because as much as I like Victor Oladipo on and off the court as much as I'm rooting for him to succeed the resume isn't that impressive at this point you know he's he is a two-time all-star he made the all-nba team in 2017-18 he has demonstrated defensive excellence when he's healthy but at this point more of his career has been spent searching for that level than actually operating at that level he's now 28 years old coming off that major leg injury. Um, he struggled once he was on the court this season, albeit in a weird situation without much continuity or ability to get into a rhythm. So yes, I, I would move him for the best return package that I can get because I'm concerned that one more year of this lackluster post-injury production is going to detonate his trade value and you're not going to be able to get anything or he'll just leave in free agency for nothing. I would agree pretty much across the board there. He's not. It doesn't seem like he's a player that Indiana wants to max out anyway. It does feel like they made some decisions over the offseason, like signing Malcolm Brogdon with the idea that Oladipo was a long-term piece for them in mind. But it doesn't feel like if he came out and you kept him through last season and he's, you know, 2017, 2018 Victor Oladipo, then yeah, that's more appealing. But as you've already alluded to, the sample size, he has a much larger sample size of not being an All-NBA player uh, than he does of being an All-NBA caliber player. And that's... look. Even in Indiana, that's true. Like, don't even look at the rest of his career. In Before he suffered his right quad injury, like, he wasn't at the 2017-2018 level. And he was trying to play through it at first, which contributes to it, but he wasn't getting to the rim as often. Uh, more problematically, like, there, his pull-up jumper just wasn't falling at the rate that it previously, previously was. He came back. He kind of weeded out the long twos in his game. Maybe that makes you feel, or some of the long twos, I should say. Um, and like introduce some more like 10 to 16 footers and then took more of his shots from threes. Like maybe that makes you feel a little bit better about it. But when you don't know the player he's going to be, and if, if he really wants out, I think you have to look at moving him and I would ultimately move him. What's tough about it though, is that without him, I don't know that you look at it and say, well, we have this blue chip cornerstone. You have to feel that that's Demantis Sabonis. And is he a top 25 player? Like, is that his ceiling? 
I, my guess would be no, but like maybe he was an all-star this past season. And so maybe you are that bullish on him. Like that's where the trade for him gets interesting is that you might almost, you're not really in a position to start over after paying Turner and Sabonis and Brogdon and even Lamb, who's probably going to miss most of next season. So that's the dilemma that, that Indy's in is that you have to get a return where you're probably not going to get another star. I wouldn't think unless you're like a distressed asset star, which I don't think they should be going after a, you know, a Blake Griffin. Like that's not the guy like for them and a crazy awkward fit anyway. Uh, so where, what they get back for him becomes super interesting because I don't think they would look at a package necessarily built around future prospects, or maybe they would because they were a playoff team okay. playing like one without Oladipo. And so if you're like, well, let's just get some cost-controlled assets and picks, uh, that might be a, a frame of mind that they take. And like maybe we'll find that blue-chip cornerstone and, and develop him rather than try and trade for one where the odds are overwhelmingly likely against them getting that player. I will say, and, and you are free to, you know, in roughly 2030, look back and, and check this statement. I do think that this is a, a trade, an, an upcoming inevitable trade that is doomed to be horribly misevaluated from a retroactive perspective because he is going to be an expiring contract with the injury concerns, already 28. We don't quite know what he's going to get. He's not going to bring back a huge package. So either that's not going to be a notable enough package if he does not experience a, a career resurgence to show up in these retroactive trade evaluations, or he's going to blossom and the trade package is going to look shoddy compared to what Indiana should have gotten for him. And we're going to criticize the Pacers franchise for not getting more because we don't remember the full context. Just it, it has the makings of one of those where articles written 10 years from now are just not going to do justice to the actual situation. Yeah, I, I would I would think if you're going to be more granular about it, though, that most people would recognize that. But you're 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 probably just dead on. Like it's going to be it's like we killed them for the Paul George return. But I feel like there are people that are going to yeah, and that turned out to be fine, I guess, for what they were trying to do. Uh, but it does feel like, yeah, there could be that perception publicly that that they mess up the, the Victor Oladipo trade, which I probably won't be of the mind, depending on what they get. Like if you end up trading him for just cap relief like or something like a non if the package would have to be truly terrible for me to not see the thinking behind it for them with that even if it is truly terrible like i think you can still see the thinking because something terrible as long as it's not going to be on your long-term books is still going to be better than a year of lackluster production and then a walk-in free agency so with that in mind let me just throw some teams out here with some baseline trade packages i'm going to start in atlanta actually, because I think he'd be a fantastic fit next to Trey Young. Would you give up? And they just have so much cap space to burn. So, like, if if Indiana really wants a Clint Capella or Dwayne Dedman as, like, salary filler, okay, fine. But, like, they don't need to give that up. Are you willing to give up two of DeAndre Hunter, Cam Reddish, Kevin Herter, and number six as the, the meat and potatoes of a Victor Oladipo package? I was prepared going into this game to just say no across the board because I am so concerned about the Oladipo return, but I'll, I'll say yes to that one because the fit is so ideal alongside Trey Young. If he can be even 80% of what he was during that 2017, 18 season, couple that with how many second tier prospects they have. And the fact that number six in this draft doesn't seem particularly valuable because the class itself does not carry such a sterling reputation. Sure. I would give up to two and of that list. That would be, that would be my, like, I don't know, pause for Atlanta, but because the number six pick just doesn't have that much sway, I feel like you would look at 
they're going to want Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter, or it has to be something like DeAndre Hunter, number six, and then a future pick protected. I think I would probably still do that, but I do too. But again, that's a huge risk. I just don't know if you're ever going to get a crack at another, what Oladipo theoretically could be. And you don't need him to be the best version of Oladipo next to Trey Young. And that's what it comes down to for Atlanta in particular, because of those prospects, and you can include the number six pick as a prospect, none of them feel like they have like top 20 player potential. Uh-huh. They, Atlanta has a ton of good supporting pieces around Trey Young, but is bereft of a second star. And Oladipo at least can be that second star. Yeah, no disrespect to John Collins. Would you prefer to have Drew Holiday under the same framework? Yes. I'm probably with you there. There's a, I'm, I'm interested. I, who, I trust the defense more. I trust the, the the leadership more. I trust the offense more. His age doesn't fit the timeline as well. But if you are looking to keep Trey happy and try to avoid going down this route that we see with so many superstars in smaller or less marquee markets, because uh, Atlanta isn't really a small market per se, um, then yeah, like I think I think you can make the immediate play there. Yeah, I would I would advise them against trying to keep Trey Young happy because he's not going to turn down the the max deals or restricted free agent. But you better not. I think I think it just doesn't happen. Kristaps Porzingis threatened to do it, and he probably never was going to do it. And New York reacted anyway. But I I would agree. I'd prefer Drew Holiday. Boston, um, maybe that's why I had Boston on the brain when I was saying this. Gordon Hayward, number fourteen and number twenty six for Oladipo and Doug McDermott. Nah, I don't think so. I think you've seen enough from Gordon Hayward to be convinced that he can still play at a high level. And there's not much of a reason to mess with that young core. Um, Even if you're not taking pieces away from the young core, you're still taking opportunities away from them if you put the ball in Oladipo's hands more. I think Hayward's a better fit with that team. I'd probably go, if I'm Boston, I would do it. I think if I was India, it would give me pause, even though Hayward would be a good fit there. I I think what we kind of saw in the, the series against the heat is that they could kind of use another like high level, like creator and, and shooter. And maybe you're looking at it as, as well, you know, Hayward's probably going to be cheaper in free agency after next year, assuming he doesn't like extend or whatever this summer. Um, I would totally understand that look at it. And maybe you're getting a little bit smaller too. And all the depot has his own injury concerns, but I kind of feel like, I, f- I feel like you raise your ceiling substantially for the next three to five years with Oladipo over keeping Hayward and either beyond next season retaining him or just letting him walk. The Brooklyn Nets are my next team. They're in the market for a third star. Now, here's what's interesting. I would be I would not give up Karis LeVert in a I would neither Victor Oladipo trade. But I feel like if you went Torian Prince and Spencer Dinwiddie number nineteen. And then another pick. Is that something Indy in a heartbeat? Thinks? You would do in a heart. Well, well, for who? I don't know if Indy does it. I don't know if Indy does it, unless they truly are desperate because there are no better offers coming in. But yeah, if I'm Brooklyn, like yes, please. If I can get Oladipo without parting with Lavert, hell yeah. I, and I think I'm doing that too. And look, there are other things you could do aside from give him two first. Um, give him Spencer Dinwiddie and, and Torian Prince, who's he's definitely overpaid, but like. The way that Indy does with wings who have like any semblance of a jump shot, like he'll probably end up being really good there. And then I wouldn't give them like a third first round pick, like distant out, but you do have Musa, you do have Rodion's Kuruks. Like if you could throw them in, even Nicholas Claxton, like there are those interesting, but look, you could throw in Timothy Luau Cabarro, who was really good for them. They have him on a non guaranteed deal for 1.8 million. I absolutely think they should keep him. So I think from 
what I'm looking at is two firsts, Spencer Dinwiddie, Torian Prince, and then something else that's not a first-round pick. Like, that's the package. And if I'm Indy, I consider it because Spencer Dinwiddie's really good. And I guess you worry about the defensive trade-off there because he's probably only serviceable. But Indy seems to cobble together if, if Dan Burke is still going to be there on, on the staff. Like, they just seem like TJ Warren's now like this competent defender. And like Boyan Bogdanovich was a competent defender for them. So I'm not worrying about it too much. But I think my guess is that Brooklyn would have a semi-realistic shot of getting Oladipo without including Levert. I don't include Levert, and so maybe that is a deal breaker for the Pacers, but I also don't necessarily think it, it, it should be, just because of the injury risk and the contract. I don't know what the other packages out there are going to look like. Plus, if you're the Nets, when has giving up a bunch of future first-round picks for a veteran ever gone wrong? Right. That's totally fine. Um, look, if, you, if that's loosely protected, like if we're talking 2022, loosely protected— that's like an interesting pick if you're indie. And I know front offices aren't going to think that far out because which front offices have that type of job security. But there's a chance that the Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving situation combusts. There's a chance. There's also a chance that Kevin Durant is not the Kevin Durant we remember when he comes back from an Achilles rupture. And uh, arguably, so, Vic- yeah, like arguably, <laughs> those Victor picks Ol- could be better than you expect. And arguably, Victor Oladipo adds to the combustibility of it just because of his right quad. Yeah. yeah. Um, this team I don't want to spend too much time on just because I'm not sure if they have the, the like surrounding assets to go get him. But Dallas, if you're using Tim Hardaway Jr. as an expiring anchor, like you can include this year's after the draft, you can trade number 18, whoever they take there. And like you have, I don't know what you include on top of that. Like I probably wouldn't want to give up Dorian Finney-Smith um, just because he's so important to guarding the bigger defensive wings that you have. You have Seth Curry, but I don't know that I would want to give him up in this either. That None of those guys are better than Victor Oladipo, but they're so important to what like the team is. And I don't know how much you should be eating into your depth around Luka Doncic for Oladipo. I'd feel different if this was Drew Holiday. So here's my thing with Dallas. Regardless of the package, is that you've already given up so many assets to get Kristaps Porzingis on this team. You have limited cap space. You have limited flexibility to make trades. You have to nail the acquisition of that third star. If it's Drew Holiday, I feel better about it. But there's too much uncertainty with Oladipo for me to want to shoot my shot with a package for him. Because you are not going to get another chance if you're a Dallas to build the right team around Kristaps and Luka. I I mostly agree with you. What I'm thinking from it is is that Oladipo, based off what he could get in his next deal, like Dallas can afford to add kind of a semi-expensive player. And if you think he's going to end up at around 20, 21 million again, there are things that they could do to then go out and carve out close to max cap space the following summer, in which case maybe you're in play for a Giannis Antetokounmpo. That's why I'd think about it. Whereas with a Drew Holiday, like I feel like he ends up costing more than Oladipo at this point, or he opts in and he's making almost $30 million and, and that kind of hamstrings you. I think about it also because you can let him walk. And if, if it's not costing you a 2025 first round pick, which is the first future first round pick, that they could trade because 2021 and 2023 are going to New York. If it's not costing you that, I consider it. But yeah, I think I would, you're right that they have to nail it because they've already played some of their best hands. Yeah. The, um, the, the next team, and I'm, I'm, I only have a couple left. Nuggets are interesting to me. I think people are going to argue that they shouldn't do anything drastic after making it to the Western conference finals. I would argue that it's going to be a lot harder to get back there next season when the Warriors are at least going to be better. Maybe one of the up-and-coming teams hit. Like, whether it's the... I kind of worry about the Grizzlies, but maybe it's the Pelicans. Maybe it's the Suns 
for all we know. Uh, the Blazers are going to be healthier. I'm not putting them under the up-and-coming section. The, the Rockets should still be okay. The Lakers are going to have. The Clippers are going to have. So I think it's harder to get back there. And if you can use Gary Harris as the anchor, like is there you know a Gary Harris and Will Barton and a first? Uh, for Oladipo and Doug McDermott, is that something you're considering? If you it's sure. if you, if you can get him without giving up Michael Porter Jr., are you doing it? You took the words out of my mouth. If you can get him without diving into your untouchable assets, which are Jokic, Jamal Murray, and Michael Porter Jr. and Monte Morris, then you do it. You like how I snuck Monte Morris into that? <laughs> what, what if they want Monte Morris though? He's good. He's going to be a free agent in 2021. Then yeah, yeah. That, that's mostly mostly a joke. Uh, Monte Morris was very good for them at moments during the conference finals. If you don't have to like have him, he gets like a little bit fl- like flustered. It feels like when he's in the lane and, and in traffic, but he's so good. He's just so good. Uh, I would agree with you there though, because I feel like there there's a risk involved there. But if you're not giving up Michael Porter Jr., like you can, I think you can let Victor Oladipo walk after next season, and it's like not a huge hit because I don't know how much value the Gary Harris contract has, and that's also why it's weird for Indiana. Maybe they trust that he'll be better with them. Um, it also is there might be something to be said like if you trade Gary Harris and Will Barton in this deal, like that's a lot of your your wing depth, and you have to take back other money in return. But that's something that they could look at. If Jeremy Grant's coming back, maybe you're not worried about it as much. Uh, the next team, I think you knew this was coming, is the Golden State Warriors. I don't necessarily know what the framework is. I think you've already said you wouldn't give up this year's pick or the Minnesota pick for Victor Oladipo. I wouldn't. I think you can get more for them, or you can just use them. I think but if I, you can build it, if you can build it around like Andrew Wiggins and something else, sure. Well, I think the most thought process would be: can you trade for a more expensive player using the trade exception, and then flip that player with the pick? to Indiana at some point because you can't tr- – I don't think Indiana will want Wiggins. Now, if you could do it, I would do number two in Wiggins in a, for Oladipo in a in a heartbeat. And you probably need to, if you're Golden State, take back more money there since Wiggins makes so much. I would do that in a heartbeat if I was Golden State, and I would trade the number two pick for him. Minnesota's pick it is where it gets weird. I've looked at – is there a framework where if you're Indiana, I want to know if this makes sense. There has to be other parts involved, but if you are trading Victor Oladipo and Miles Turner – to the Warriors. Are you doing that if you're getting number two, the Minnesota pick, another pick, and you're also taking back Andrew Wiggins' salary? There are There's other money in there, but it won't be like long-term or crippling. But is that a package you're considering, or is Andrew Wiggins just too steep? And now at this point, I don't know what Miles Turner's value is, but he has three like solidly priced years left on his deal. Yeah, I think it's I think it's too much. I'm I'm still so hesitant with that Wiggins contract. I'm probably with you that you can't get both, but I would trade number two in a heartbeat if it meant getting Oladipo back. I'd take that swing if I'm Golden State. The team I think is going to be mentioned the most is Miami, just because they've been cited as a destination for him. They do have some interesting salary matching pieces when you look at, let's assume Kelly Olynyk opts into his contract, and then you have Andre Godala, one year, $15 million left with the team option on year number two. I, but what like are you trading Duncan Robinson or Tyler Hero for Victor Oladipo at this point? No, no. And if you <laughs> do acquire Oladipo, does that mean you're not bringing back Goran Dragic on that one-year balloon deal that seems so inevitable? Are you no longer making a play for other guys on those one-year deals like that? I, I would not alter with the fundamental makeup of this team, even if it does allow you to get another top-tier talent on an expiring deal that isn't going to mess with those 2021 free agent pursuits. Like they're in the finals. 
they looked really good getting to the finals. Like, there's no need to make a I, massive swing here. I will say that you can keep Crowder and, and Dragic on huge one-year deals and still trade for Oladipo. I'm not giving up Hero or Duncan Robinson for it because if I'm the Heat, I think the cap space... Like, because Oladipo is expiring, which, fit, which fits into what they're doing. So, like, if you can get him for Kendrick Nunn, pick number 20 in this draft, and then Olenek, like, or even Iguodala, like, whichever one they prefer... I would do it, but like if you need I mean, to, sure. But that's the worst package we've heard yet. Yeah, Iguodala, Kendrick Nunn, like, and pick number twenty is like they would have the to love. Stand out of that is the number twenty pick in an awful draft. Fair enough. Um, do you think Milwaukee has the the asset firepower to get involved in this discussion? No, not really, because it's the same situation. It's like is Eric Bledsoe or George Hill really going to sell you when the other thing you're getting is a non lottery first round pick in a bad draft? Yeah, I'm I, like, just, I don't see I don't see the package being enticing enough. The reason that they can get in play on someone like Chris Paul is because the the financial numbers are still so cumbersome and aren't just expiring. You're not going to get that for for a one year deal. So you wouldn't do if you're Milwaukee, you wouldn't do Bledsoe, Dante, and a future first for Oladipo if I mean, he's willing to sure, talk. Sure, but sure, but I think it's similar to I, I would do it if I'm Milwaukee, but I would hang up the phone if I'm Indiana. Oh, you're that low on a few a future pick from Milwaukee at this point, I believe, is in 2024. Oh, so. a future pick. Yeah. yeah, I mean, still, like, it's it's just that's such a tough sell to the Pacers fan base saying, like, hey, like, here's this first round pick four years from now for a guy who's been the face of our franchise. I think what their best bet would be, can you find a third team that, like, actually wants Eric Bledsoe and would give a little something for him? Like, do one of the cap space teams, if it's Charlotte or Atlanta, like him where they're not going to, you know, Atlanta's not giving up Cam Reddish for him but are they giving up like a protected first like maybe that makes the package a little bit more intriguing for Indy I don't I don't know I would I would say that that's probably on the lower end this is my final team um although I would I did kind of want to throw in Toronto as a dark horse but I just don't with the way their free agency books are I just and how they're going to prioritize cap space in 2021 I don't know like what they have that actually interests Indiana like Norman Powell in a first as the framework is just not going to do it um Portland I thought about like you can build stuff around Trevor Ariza, non-guaranteed salary at twelve point eight million. Um, so that's like your main salary anchor. Then you have Anthony Simons throw in there, even though he had a bad year. I don't think Zach Collins is of any like real value to Indy if they're keeping Turner and Sabonis. It gets interesting if you're trading Turner somewhere else. But like, is there partial framework and maybe even Hood? Like just to deepen your wing rotation because he's cheap. Like if you're working with Ariza, Hood, Simons, and pick number sixteen, is that at least a starting point? Or no? Like, is that just on the super low end of the spectrum of this? And I'll say the caveat of this, if I'm Portland, Gary Trent Jr. is absolutely untouchable in this scenario. Yeah, I think it's it's on the cusp of a starting point, <laughs> which I, I don't know that it's really anything more than that. Like, I think I feel like you're going to end up needing to throw in some future picks there. But I, I just, I don't like the fit in Portland. I love it. Give me the three, like, if you're going to bring Melo back, like, yeah, all right, it gets bad. But like, Go smaller. Like Oladipo is going to give you some good wing defensive minutes anyway. Uh, maybe it doesn't make sense to trade two wings when you need wings so badly. But if you're still going to use your mid level, I, I that this was like my. Are you asking Oladipo to play off the ball exclusively on offense? I think that it could end up helping exclusively. No, but like we've seen what Dame can do at points off the ball, and so like the the minutes to navigate. Like you're almost going to be in a situation where one, you'll never not have any of those three on the court, and most of your minutes are going to have two of McCollum and Lillard and Oladipo on the floor, like that's offensive hellfire for defenses. So 
That it was, feels like more of a luxury move, though, for a team that isn't quite to the stage where it can have luxury moves. Probably more out there, but if I was Portland, I would look at the asking price. I think, look, I honestly feel like there are teams that could get in this that we don't really know about because of just the situation with Oladipo, the injury, and the contract. Like Maybe Sacramento gets involved or something weird. Charlotte. What are they giving? That's the question. You know, Are you willing to part with picks for him, which they probably shouldn't be? But if the asking price goes low enough, that's a that's a destination where I think he could be a lot of fun because it, it's similar to that Portland fit, but it's taking more of a flyer and a guy who can be your primary scorer uh, because you don't quite trust Devontae Graham and Terry Rozier. But it seems like a fun, fun potential destination for a team that's motivated to move out of that middle class. Maybe even Philly, if you can like sort of glamour up the your main salary filler, which is going to have to be, I wouldn't. It's going to have to be Tobias or Al Horford, and preferably Tobias because Indy would have an actual need for him. Like, does as a starting point, you're going to have to take back other salary, but Tobias, Thibel, another first, like Zaire Smith can be in there. Like, can they get in this conversation at all? Do you need to have Josh Richardson as well? In which case, the money gets so complicated because it's just so much money coming out of Philly. My guess would be no, that there it would be like an intricate three team trade. And I don't know that I'd want to give up Josh Richardson and Tobias Harris for an Old Depot plus. A pick plus Matisse, that's probably something I wouldn't do, but he would actually be a good fit in Philly, I think, like for what they need. I could see that for sure. That does it for us, though. Uh, went way longer than I expected on this. Um, the Victor Oladipo trade package took us way over. If you guys have not already, please remember to subscribe and to this podcast and, and download every episode. That helps us out. Whether or not you're using iTunes, please head over there. Throw us a five-star rating, write a review. We much appreciate, and that helps us out a ton too. So again, just want to beg, plead with you to go ahead and do that since those numbers have kind of stagnated in recent weeks. And follow us on social media at Hardwood Knox on Twitter. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We're there. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only future head coach of the Los Angeles Clippers, Stan Van Gundy. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.